Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is a Hall of Famer. And I don't just mean the Staffer Hall of Fame, which, as regular listeners know, is the building that I'd like to build and place on the National Mall. No, my next guest was inducted into another Hall of Fame in 2021, the PR Week Hall of Fame, which recognizes the most influential people in the field of public relations for their lifetime contributions. He also happens to be a great person and a friend. Hanno Cabrera is Chief Communications Office for General Mills, the maker of foods and brands that fill the aisles of every grocery store in America. In his role, Hanno oversees all communications for the company, an expansive brief that draws on every aspect of his career, which has covered government, politics, global consulting, and in-house corporate communications. Prior to joining General Mills, Hanno was Senior Vice President of Corporate Relations at McDonald's, and prior to that, served as Worldwide Vice President at Burson Marsteller, now known as Burson Conan Wolf, where he built and led their Issues and Crisis Group. Prior to all that, of course, Hanno was a staffer who spent a decade in politics and government. After a short stint on Capitol Hill, Hanno was national spokesman for Vice President Al Gore and worked on the political side for the Gore campaign, the Democratic National Committee, and later for Joe Lieberman's presidential campaign. I've known Hanno for 20 years, and he is undoubtedly one of the smartest, kindest, most insightful people I have ever had the pleasure of working with and crossing paths with. Hanno and I recorded this episode on Friday, June 17th. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hanno Cabrera, welcome to Staffer. Jim, I'm so excited. (laughs) I am so excited. This, this, I love this show. It's like the premise is like you take people who've reached a modicum of success and psychological safety and you're just like, I'm going to take you back to the days when you had neither. And let's talk about that. It's great. I I tell you, it really is an ode to being a staffer uh, because I love transporting back to, you know, those moments of like, you know, when you were trying to climb the ladder, right? And and experience all these things in politics or government. and then to discuss kind of those lessons learned, right? That you're applying, you know, beyond politics and government. It's it's great. And like, look, uh, I, I, I am the perfect audience for this. I <laughs> love this show. I love hearing the stories. It transports you back to your early days of like trying to figure it out. And the more painful the stories, the better. Here, and, here. Um, All yeah. right. All right. Um, well, and Hunter, I have you're plenty all- of ammunition on that front. <laughs> Fantastic. Me too. Um, you know, as, as you know, I like to start at the beginning to just learn a little bit about uh, people. So let me ask you, tell us about where you grew up and what family life was like. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Southern California. Um, and nowadays uh, in Southern California, people would have no problem pronouncing my name, Hano Cabrera. No problem. Uh, demographics were very different then. Um, and uh, at the time that I was growing up, my father uh, insisted that I not speak any Spanish at home. Mm-hmm. And that was very difficult for me because my mother is a fluent Spanish speaker. Uh, my siblings did not have that restriction. I have a brother and a sister. One is a teacher, one is in law enforcement. And, um, you know, the 
the net impact on that is uh, now it's a family tradition that my family will ask me to share a story, but to try to do that in Spanish. And it's just, it, unless it involves me going to the biblioteca with my friend Pablo, like I just can't, like it is so painful. Now, why did that rule only apply to you? Were you the oldest well, or the youngest? Uh, I was the youngest. And um, look, at that point, um, the Southern California was just very different. And I think my father was very focused on acclimation. And it's not unusual for that to be the case. Um, but I mentioned that in this context because um, the, the other drive that my father had, and I think it's grounded in both, is um, just making sure that we saw the responsibility to vote at an early age, which is crazy because if you think about it, like this is almost like Royal Tenenbaum imparting bad advice to like his young uh, grandchildren. Right, like there's nothing I can do about registering to vote when I'm a six year old. <laughs> but my dad, like, really, you know, look, he was a diehard Democrat. He cared very deeply about politics. And it was often a discussion around our uh, uh, dining table. So, um, yeah. So, when you went off to college at Pomona, did you know that politics was something that you wanted to explore uh, either in your undergraduate studies or potentially as a career? Yeah, I, I say that I have two early political memories. My earliest is I distinctly remember being in elementary school. Reagan has just won. And there are these school kids marching around chanting Reagan. And I remember thinking at the time, like, what, what do you know about Reagan? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, how, how could they possibly know? But so much of it is like, you know, we, we mimic our parents. Um, and I would like to say, like, you know, that set me on the path of politics, but it didn't. It's just like the earliest political memory I have. And when I went to college, uh, I went in with intention of having a dual major of English and biology. And then I took my first uh, collegiate biology level class and was just like, well, I'm not doing that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> English looks pretty good. <laughs> uh, I spent a semester abroad in Washington, D.C. Uh, I was interested, but uh, it wasn't until I was in these waters that I just, this is it. This is what I want to do. And I had to change my majors, my major from English over to politics. And the rest of my time in college, because I did that when I was um, a junior, I took nothing but political courses. Okay. Um, but at that point, I had deeply fallen in love with the city, politics, just the zeitgeist of all of it. Yeah. So when I look at your resume, it looks like the first entry that I saw was press secretary to then Congressman Javier Becerra, now uh, HHS Secretary Becerra. Um, how did you get to that role? Was that part of the summer semester or did you move out here and knock on doors? Like how, how did you navigate your way to that first job in politics? Yeah. It's, um, so, you know, like this is often the case, there are some things missing on the resume. Yeah. But when I first came to DC, I graduated 48 hours. I was in DC. Um, and I was working for the national, uh, education association, which is, uh, the union for teachers. And, um, Myself and a fellow Pomona grad by the name of Dax Oliver both got internships there. And Dax was responsible for telling our employer, like, hey, 
We're landing, because she offered to pick us up. We're landing in D.C. on Saturday. And that's all he told her. Like, he didn't tell her which flight. He didn't tell her what time. The first <laughs> sentence that we heard when we landed was from Stephanie Weiss, who said, Dax, Hano, you two have got to get your blank together if you're going to make it here. Like, I cannot believe that this is all the information you gave. Also, on top of that, like, we did not have housing. Our thought process was we're going to land in D.C., rent a motel room, and then find an apartment. Oh, yeah, it's horrible. Horrible. That's unbelievable. We lived in Stephanie's garage <laughs> for two months until she was just like, look, you guys have got up. Luckily, like we had found a place. Um, but it, oh, my gosh, it was unreal. I mean, that I mean, you were really out there with no no parachute, no net, like whatever the right analogy is. You guys. Right. I mean, you just made it up right on the spot. Yeah, this is this is why I love this show, Jim. Because like all, all these like memories are coming back, and it was yeah, it really was horrible. But look, so I worked at the NEA, and um, just just to quickly share an anecdote, like we were starving, like we really weren't. Uh, I mean, we were paid, but like we were interns. Of course, yeah. We would take home food that was left over from events and just scarf it down, and at yeah. no point thinking, why are we getting sick? It, it, I'm sure it has nothing to do with like the 10 day old tuna salad that we're still eating. It was um, after the NEA, I, I worked at a uh, at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. that's focused on uh, the federal budget and its impact uh, on uh, low income families. And it's while I was there that there was an opening for Congressman Becerra's office. And uh, the, the head of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, he's since retired, is Bob Greenstein. He's very well known and respected. And he was just like, look, if you want to work on Capitol Hill, I will vouchsafe. And that became like an important lesson for me early on, which is like in D.C. and beyond, like relationships matter a great deal. And I was very honest with the center that that was something I wanted to do. And it, and it helped me. And I got connected with Congressman Becerra's office and... I told uh, Bob, like, I'm going to be the staff assistant. And he's just like, no, you're not. Like, th absolutely not. Like, you, you should not be answering phones. That That wow. is not a job you should take. And he called Krista Atterbury, who was the chief of staff, and said, like, get him something better. This kid, this kid can write. He can do more for you. And so I got my first promotion without doing much. Um, it's the only time. <laughs> wow. And that, uh, she made me the LC. Well, I mean, I did not know about those two entries in your biography about the NEA and, and the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, both of which are highly credible organizations in Washington and particularly in Democratic circles. And, and Bob Greenstein, is, as you mentioned, is a legend. I, oh, I mean, yeah. a, a, a total legend. You know, um, I know you and your whole career from the communication side of things, right? Uh, that's how we've crossed paths, but also how I've come to admire your work. Um, but it sounds like it was a little bit of happenstance. That is, that was the, you know, there's sort of like the press track and the ledge track. And maybe if the opportunity had been, well, we have an L.A. opening, you would have been in L.A. handling education and the budget and maybe something else. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I... 
I think if most politicos are being honest, they can't help but look back on their careers and just marvel at how lucky they were, not just once, not twice, but several times over, over the course of their career. Like there, but for a twist of fate, you could have gone in a very different direction. Yep, um, that's right. And look, I, I am truly grateful of, of the mentors, the opportunities that I've had. But I mean, so much of it really is... Um, Right time, right place. Yep. Um, so after a, I mean, speaking of which, after a short period of time, you made your way to the White House. So you haven't been in Washington all that long. You haven't been on the Hill for very long. And all of a sudden, you are in the office of Vice President Al Gore. And you served in a number of different capacities um, for the vice president, kind of in his orbit over the next several years. Um, you were a press secretary in his official office. You moved to the campaign uh, in 2000, and you served as a spokesman uh, for the war room and then and also the recount. And later, um, you even served in his personal office, his post-presidential office. Now, I guess my first question on that you know, transition, that period, is how did you make it to the White House after such a short period of time on the Hill? Yeah, so this is, this is one of my favorite things to relate to people. I don't know. And here's what <laughs> I mean by that. Uh, Look, I was working on Capitol Hill. I started as an LC. The press secretary for Congressman Becerra's office went out on maternity leave. And so it fell to me and I loved it. I was just like, this is all I want to do in my life. And the DC is divided between flax and wonks. And I really am more of a policy guy. And at the time there was a debate on social security that was occurring on Capitol Hill. And I, I knew the details from my time at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And because Congressman Becerra was on Ways and Means, that meant that so much of the debate was was happening through those members. Yeah. And I would take every opportunity I had to provide journalists with a 101 on Social Security. Because the fact of the matter is, like, unless you've covered this before, like, chances are you don't know the nuances of that program. How yeah. efficient it is, how it works, how it goes beyond what you might think it does. And one of those journalists, and I still to this day, I have no idea who that was, she or he said to the vice president's office, we know that you're looking for a junior person. Please talk to him. Like, we like him. And that was relayed to me when I got to, to the office of the VP. And I, I have no idea who it was. It, when I got the call, Jim, I was at home in my apartment in DC. And was just like, would you like to interview with the office of the vice president? And I thought it was a joke. It was just like, oh is this real? God. It was so, uh, I just couldn't believe it so much that, you know, obviously I suited up, I prepared for the interview, I went to the White House, and at the time, like, you know, you entered in a code that was given to you. When that gate opened, the thought that went through my head is like, this is real. Yeah. And I probably didn't prepare as much as I should have. <laughs> again, it's, it's. It's proof positive. It's just a very, very, so much of the career is just shaped by luck. Well, it, it is luck, but also, in it, you know, and, and I would agree with that. There is also a, a combination of good work getting noticed. And most of the time, it, right, it is, it is yes. noticed by your peers, your colleagues, often reporters. But you sort of know who becomes an ally you know, somebody who you can work with over time, like a Bob Greenstein, right? You observed your work, willing to help you. It's pretty rare 
that you have almost a secret Santa, <laughs> right? Who who is so impressed by your work that they put in an anonymous good word for you at the highest levels in politics, and because of that work, you get that entree. That's amazing, and because, it's it's also heartwarming. Yeah, and because I don't know who it is, I'm just going to claim it was Tucker Carlson. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we know that's not true because he doesn't know shit about Social Security. <laughs> <laughs> that's why he appreciated the briefings. <laughs> um, okay, so doing so now you you find yourself in the White House. There is, I don't, I'm not sure there's another place on the planet um, where doing communications is as hard as it is in the White House. It is nonstop, twenty four seven. 365 days a year. Um, every moment of every day is sort of furious. It uh, is antagonistic in that, yeah. you know, the, right? The other side is trying to trip you up. It's on every topic in the world, every domestic issue, every foreign policy issue could potentially, you know, take the, your, your day. And your success or failure is there for the entire, you know, world to see. Right? Yeah. It, it is very public in, in, in your successes and, and your, your failings. Um, there's probably no better sort of ninja training than that. And you probably, you know, you learned a million things. But when you reflect on that time and how it shaped you as a communications professional, what are some of the things that you look at at that time and you're like, but for that experience, I wouldn't have known X or Y? Yeah, so I, I, I have thought about this question and it, it comes down to this quote, um, which is, you know, uh, politics is war by other means. Uh, and the, the reason why I mention that is, you know, soldiers talk about being bonded forever when they're in a war zone together. And I come from a military family. My father served, my uncle served. I actually thought I was going to serve. I enrolled in ROTC in college. Um, th that bond is something that I grew up with, constant talk about, um, people that they served with, uh, it, it, it is almost like a second family. It's when I was at the White House that I realized, like, I will be bonded to these individuals forever. And I am. Like, there isn't a person I worked with at the White House that if they were to call me right now and just say, like, Hi, hey, I'm in town, I would happily, happily welcome them with open arms because we just have had a life experience that is unlike any other. And in, in politics, like I, you know, that really does matter. There's like a tapestry in DC of people who, you know, just support, love you and like look for your success. And to the point that you were making earlier, I do think, I know that I've beat the drum a couple of times on, on luck, but you're right. The politics is a meritocracy. And as your colleagues like see you working hard, like, there is a constant push by that collective of like, take a look here, consider this individual. Um, so it's it's both a bond for life, but it's also like a support network, really, yeah. really for life. The other yeah. thing I would share about my time briefly at the White House is I yeah. remember thinking, I know the news before anyone else, because everything that's on the front page, like, you know, it's it's going to be announced. You know that deal. You know that scandal. And um, yeah, it was it was this feeling that I was like a day in the future before yes. everyone else. Yes, I remember 
when I left the White House, the, the, the two things about news generally that really, you know, landed with me. Um, one was what you're describing. Like, I, I was no longer able to read every story and know what was wrong <laughs> with that story. You know what I'm saying? Sure, like, yeah. because, right, because I had known so much more before, once you lose access to that pipeline, you you rely so much more heavily on on every reporter's right summation. Um, secondly, what I felt was relief, because when you're in the White House, every article in the newspaper is, yeah. is was like something that could affect your day. And when I was you know because I did legislative affairs, I would look at each article in the newspaper and think to myself, who's going to be upset about that? Who's going to wish they had known about that? Who's oh, going to yeah. come talk to me? Right. It was. And then all of a sudden I was able to just read the newspaper for enjoyment <laughs> <laughs> and not have to worry that all these problems were going to be mine that day. It's yeah. I mean, it's a huge mental shift. I think it is akin to when you graduate from undergrad and you realize like no more books, no more tests. Like you, you now have free time for the first time as an adult. And I felt that way. You're right. When, when, you know, well, after the White House went to the campaign, but after that campaign period was over, it's like there's a there's a degree of liberty yeah. that, that came with it. Well, you you did stay in the fire for a period of years uh, because after uh, after the Clinton Gore uh, White House, you went to the DNC. Um, yeah. And even after that, you went back out on the campaign trail. You worked for Joe Lieberman during his uh, presidential bid and then back uh, to the DNC for the the general. Um, what, you know, what about presidential campaigns in particular really drew you to them? Yeah, uh, you know, um, I guess I'm a masochist because it, it's for everyone who's listening. They know this. Uh, but for those who have never worked in politics, um, to be a staffer is to be, especially in the communication space, is to be somebody who has to wake up at 4.30, sometimes 5 a.m., so that you can consume as much news as possible, so that you can get ready for the briefing call that is held early in the morning. And then from that point on, like you're working constantly until you're going out for dinner, but typically with a journalist, because that is part of the job. And by the time you're done, truly done with your day, like it's 10 o'clock and it's time to sleep. And you're doing that practically seven days a week, 365 days a year. And it, it, it is exhausting. Yes. And at, and at one point, like you, you need a break. I reached that point after a decade. But the reason why people do it is I loved it. Like I, I love being part of that conversation, like fighting the good fight and, um, you know, engaging with journalists is something that I enjoy to do in large part because I, from the bottom of my heart, truly respect every journalist I've worked with. At this point, I'll say I've never worked with Tucker Carlson. Every journalist I work with really, truly respect because, you know, I, I get how hard that job is. Yeah. But I also get how, how important that job is. So if they came with a question, I would honestly do my best to try to answer it. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean that's it's that zeal for the position that kept me going. So when you look back on those those particular those campaign years, um, what is one of your fondest memories, and what other than 
Gore's heartbreaking loss, which, you know, just stands out, right, um, historically as uh, a tragedy for for Democrats and particularly for, for those who work so closely with him. Um, what is something that you look back on and like, uh, I wish I could have changed that? Yeah. Uh, well, fondest memory, um, I mean, it's it's. I can give no other answer than uh, hiring Claire Gannon at the DNC. Uh, to be very clear, Claire and I were coworkers. We worked together. We left the DNC. And then afterwards, we became more than friends. And she is now my wife. Uh, so much I did happened. not know that. Yeah. I did not know that's how you met. Oh, yeah. that's fantastic. And I remember thinking when I was interviewing her, like, this individual is so smart, so clever. Like, we'd be lucky to have her at the DNC. But, I mean, that's basically where that thought process stopped. Um, so just to be clear, like, you know, it's just when when later we dated, it was like an aha moment for me of just like, oh, God, she's wonderful in other, other ways. But uh, so definitely that is the highlight. Correct. Number one. Yeah. No number doubt. one bullet. Um, Love Light, it, if you're asking me not to mention the recount, which is, uh, just to put this in perspective, Jim, HBO came out with a version of recount, um, a drama, dramatization of it. And this was, I think almost a decade after recount. And I thought, okay, I'm finally ready to watch this. 15 minutes in, I had to turn it off. It just oh. triggered so many memories. I just couldn't get through it. So if you're asking me to put that aside, again, I love mm. the premise of the show. <laughs> like you're happy, you reach psychological safety. Let's bring you to a place where you weren't. Um, I remember being at the White House, and uh, Gore was positioning to become a presidential aspirant, but wasn't yet. And that meant that we were now beginning to vet some of our answers with our consultants. And a question came in that said, like, you know, what's Gore's position on something related to church and state? It was about um, uh, religion in schools. And so we ran that by our consultants and I got back verbatim guidance, like say this. I was like, okay, well, I'll say that. Like I'm, I was a very young spokesperson for the White House. I think it was like 23, 24. Deliver it verbatim. And I knew right away something was wrong. The Washington Post was just like, wait, could you say that again? And mm. whatever it was, I can't recall the details. It basically was Gore announcing that he was no longer for the separation of church and state, <laughs> and, uh, oh. <laughs> which was the story that was written the next day and it had to be cleaned up. Uh, but it was a low light because I really thought at the time, like, I'm going to get fired for saying something that was like handed to me, that I was told to deliver verbatim. Right. And I, you know, I was in the firing line. And I felt the pressure that entire span of 40, 48 hours. Um, it is where, I mean, being in press is where the rubber meets the road, right? That's where all the internal debates, conversations about everything, that's where it has to be. That's where it's road tested, or not even road tested. That's when it goes to market. And because of that, you know, while press people are, are you know, are not policy wonks. Uh, they're not necessarily legislative tacticians, but, but they have to be part of these conversations because they are such an important check 
yeah. on sanity, right? It's like, well, here's how that's going to sound. Here's what the next, the follow-up question is going to be or the three follow-up questions. Um, and it's, and you know, to your point, it, it's almost never a, well, let's just do it X. And then the, the, the press person can go execute. Yeah. And right. Yeah. It was, it was an important learning. Like there was some, yeah. uh, you know, we, I think most, communications professionals have developed a spidey sense over over the years and it was definitely tingling as i read read the guidance it was just like this can't yeah. be right but well let me um let me ask you a question that i asked monica dixon uh last week who you know mm-hmm. um Listen you know to to, okay Love so monica. to to be in politics is to accept that there will you know you struggle for the highs, for the successes, the accomplishments, you know, the the impact that you hope to have on people's lives. And through that, you know, you have to accomplish some political victories. But there's also some heartache, the bills that don't make it into law and the political losses that just never leave. And so my question, you know, you mentioned the watching the the, the recount dramatization. How how did you get through that experience and how do you counsel young people who maybe, you know, may feel or may be about to feel that type of heartbreak? Yeah. Um, I guess I would Mirandize them first and just say to work in politics is to build resilience. You will lose. I mean, just look back over the course of history. It's not, it's not a one party country. You, you will experience heartache. Um, you know, the, (laughs) whether you do, you experience that heartache on a personal level or through the political lens, like the advice is the same. Like you got to get back out there, and uh, you know, for for me, the the cure for recount was not giving up the fight. And uh, when Gore reached out, um, you know, I, I worked on his campaign, I worked on the recount, and then I took a break from politics and was doing communications for the RIAA as they were having the Napster trial. And in the midst ah. of that, Gore said, "Hey, you know, I might run for president again." I have a leadership pack. Like, what do you think? And I instantly said, yes, hundred percent. Because again, like that fight was still in me and I would rather be the man in the arena, you know, if, if you will, uh, than not. So. Yeah. Well, you know, I just speaking of resilience, like I absolutely draw a line between getting through that experience, but also, Landing in DC with no plan and living out of a garage, right? <laughs> and right, and and like scrounging for food, and like it all goes to psychological resilience, right? You, yeah. I mean, it really does. You you build up some skills of like I can get through this with with more effort, maybe some revised effort, but like putting one foot ahead of the other really is a life skill. Yeah, I mean. It- that skill crystallized for me when I had ended my political career. And like a lot of people who reached like a, a, a moment where they're just like, look, I need a break. I went somewhere sunny and warm to kind of rest and recuperate. Unlike most people, it was an active war zone. It was like Baghdad, Iraq. And I, when I landed and okay. I was walking on the tarmac and I was in Hussein International Airport, like I just kept thinking, I've made a huge mistake. Like, I can't believe that this is where I am. This is something I volunteered to do. 
I I just cannot believe that I'm here. So let's unpack that for our listeners, because that was with the NDI, the National Democratic Institute. You were a volunteer for the organization um, and you spent a year there. So, you know, talk to us, uh, just give give our listeners like a a little bit about what NDI does, like who they are and what they do. And then specifically what you were doing in Iraq. Yeah, so uh, think of it this way. Um, when we talk about building civic institutions abroad, we do that in a variety of different ways as, as, a, as a government. One of the ways in which we do that is we distribute funds to USAID. USAID distributes those funds to NDI and IRI, which to some degree match up with our political parties. NDI with Democrats, IRI with Republicans. The difference between these two in the field pretty negligible, to be honest. They, they're, they're both talking about the importance of setting up civic institutions, what the pillars of democracy look like. IRI might err a little bit much on the free market system, as you might expect. But in general, like the overlap is nearly a circle on the Venn diagram than, than not. Um, if you think back to 2005, The war was very political. And if you're a Republican, you're supportive. If you're a Democrat, you opposed it. From a USAID perspective, like they needed Democrats to go to Iraq to help represent and build up these civic institutions. And at that point, I was the communications director at the DNC. I was one of the people that they would call to ask, can you name somebody? Can you think of somebody who's willing to go? And I gave them I mean, probably over a dozen names. And at one point I was just like, just send Jim Papa. Just get him out there. <laughs> um, he's, he's in my hair. He's just, I, you need to give him a far away assignment. <laughs> but at the end of the Kerry campaign, and obviously that didn't go the way we hoped, you know, I had no job. And then that is a perennial in politics. Like you, you work on a campaign, even if you win, you may not have a job, right? So like I, right. I didn't have a job and I, I was out of excuses because they kept saying like, well, what about you? And uh, as I mentioned earlier, like I come from a family that, um, you know, believes in service. Uh, and I thought this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I should go and I will go. And uh, it really wasn't until people began to say, let's do a farewell party for Hano. And they were such somber occasions that I began to realize like, oh, you guys think I'm not coming back. That (laughs) the the gravity uh, in in the importance of this decision really began to hit me. Yeah. Um, Wow. Um, Well, that really, I mean, I've never done one of those assignments. Uh, I'm familiar with it. I do know how important it is as a as a country that we extend ourselves this way and send our people abroad to help countries that are standing up um is there you know when you came back obviously we're there to impart to impart what we know to you know a a a government in a country that is going to reforming itself did you come back with you know learnings or perspective that you didn't have before yeah, I mean, ironically, like I went to Iraq because I knew that I was done with my time in politics. I was I was burnt out. Like, if I wanted to be a communications director for another presidential campaign, it's not that I thought I could. Like, I, the offer was literally in hand, and I just 
I just didn't want to do it again. Um, when I came back from Iraq, I just was filled with um, th this love of country because there's nothing quite like seeing people line up to vote knowing that IEDs might go off, did go off, and going back in line. And right. like it just it, it filled my cup to some degree. Now, granted, from there, I was just like, that's awesome. I'm now going to be a corporate consultant. <laughs> but <laughs> well, I, look, the, the thing about politics is that you continue to work on it just in different ways. And I, I've continued to stay involved. And again, being married to Claire Gannon helps because she's a political advertiser. And like, it's not, you know, it's like methadone, really, right? It's not the same. <laughs> right. I, I can right. get it. I can get it through that engagement. Yes, I, I can relate to this. Um, I mean, so let's shift to the, your, your career in the private sector, which, I mean, is just so impressive. And let me let me start with Burson Marsteller. And I know you worked for, you, know, you had a, a small consulting firm experience for a time, but now Burson Conan-Wolf, then, then Burson Marsteller. Um, you had a number of roles there. You eventually became worldwide vice president. Um, I remember talking with you when you were running a group called the Issues and Crisis Group. Um, what in your, you know, crisis is thrown a, a, around a lot mm -hmm. in, in corporate communication. So how do you think of a crisis? Like what merits being called a crisis? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I remember talking to you too, um, because you're the one that got away. I'm just like, Jim Baba would be perfect. <laughs> well, I would still like to find a way to work with you one day. Uh, yeah. That would be fun. Done. Done. Um, on the, Crisis side, like the, there, there's issues management, right? Like it's it's typically a perennial problem. Like you, you're you're trying to navigate it. For example, I would say the beverage, beverage industry, let's say um, the the sweetened beverage industry, that's issues management because it's a perennial problem that they're facing on Capitol Hill in terms of how they respond and what it is they're they're doing. That's not a crisis. The crisis is kind of like. It comes out of left field. You didn't expect it. Um, consumer faith has been lost and how you respond matters. Uh, the example I would give now that I'm Minneapolis is um, Target when it experienced its data breach. Um, that was a that was a crisis. Like it happened around Black Friday and the company needed to and successfully communicate it like, hey, we took the appropriate steps. We're, we're, we're going to come back better than ever. Um, yeah. But I remember a person thinking, uh, you know, it's one thing for us to focus on crisis response. Like really we, our job has to be crisis recovery. Like it's, it, we, crisis response is short-term crisis recovery is really how you build back the trust that has been lost. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's so many like in, industry terms like branding and, and reputation management, et cetera. I always find my thinking is clarified when I pretend a little bit that the company, the client is a person. Mm -hmm. And in politics, they are a person, right? Uh, yeah. That you are often trying to build a brand around. Um, but it's like, you know, to your point, like, do you trust them? You know, do they, do you think that they're respectful of people? You know, yeah. <laughs> do you like them? Do you feel sure. warm towards them? All, all these, all these characteristics that are very personal. Um, I, I, my thinking becomes clarified and I can get myself away from jargon. I'm like, would would that company be a person that you'd you'd like to be with? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, in fact, I 
the, the advice that I've often given to clients, especially those that feel that they can't say, I'm sorry, there's some wrong. And for whatever reason, like there's this feeling of like, well, if we say we're sorry, like we're admitting defeat or guilt and like we're past that. Typically, we're well past that. Like, look, it's now a, a part of the public record that something has gone wrong. And yeah, I would always say to them, like, it's very hard to listen to a partner if they're not ready to say, I'm sorry. And consumers aren't going to listen to this company if you can't admit that you're sorry for what occurred here. Um, so that that is, um, yeah, I, I'm with you there. Um, well, you have worked and do work with some of the most um, iconic American brands, period. You uh, were at McDonald's, where you ran communications for a number of years. You are now at General Mills, which has more than 100 brands, and names like Cheerios, Betty Crocker, Pillsbury, Wheaties. I mean, these are incredible, well-known brands that all have identities, like distinct identities in the grocery store aisle. So, you know, in politics, as we talked about, there are, you know, there's a member who needs to have a brand. There's a principal. Uh, our parties have brands that evolve over time. And and institutions can have brands that are, are you know, harder to, to shape over time. But as you think about all these distinct brands, how does, you know, what you experienced in politics inform your work, you know, as you protect and burnish the corporate brands? Yeah, th this is a conversation that I that I recently had at the company because they said uh, the the debate that we always have is are we a house of brands or are we a branded house? You know, is it General Mills that big G with a heart on it, or is it Cheerios, Annie's, Lorivar, you know, Blue Buffalo? It's like I'm, I, it's impossible to learn all the names because you know there's so many of them, and we're constantly changing our portfolio. So. Um, it is from my political days that that I said, like, the, the answer is both, right? Both of those things can be true at the same time. I can identify as a Californian and an American. I can say, you know, this is what it feels like to be a Californian, which is distinct from being a Texan, which is distinct from being a New Yorker. Like, those are very different images that you might conjure in your mind, but they're all Americans. And as we think about General Mills, this, again, this was a debate that we don't have, the nuances we don't have to get into, but uh, the point that I said in response to a colleague was, yes, we are brand forward for consumers, but when we're talking to regulators or we're talking to analysts, they actually don't care about how Cheerios performed. All they care about is like, what is the parent company doing or how is the parent company performing? So it, it is both. Um, both a branded house and a house of brands. And I think from a communications perspective, it's like which lever you pull at any given time like matters. And mm -hmm. so th there's a degree of strategy involved, which is, again, just satisfying. Yeah. I remember when you had you were at General Mills. It had been not that long, but you talked to me about your your decision making. You know, sort of what what led you to want to go to General Mills? And I was struck by how much you talked about the CEO, right? In, in, po in that in politics, like you do go work for a member, right? So like as you're deciding 
who, where are you going to go in politics? Yeah, there are political institutions, but very often we are thinking, okay, who's this member at the top? And the way you described um, the the CEO was really moving. So could you talk about that that decision-making process? Yeah, happily. Um, I was actually choosing between two companies and in my head, I thought I had already made the choice and it, it was not General Mills, but as part of their process, I met with Jeff Harmony, who's the CEO of General Mills, and it just flipped. Um, that relationship between the CCO and the CEO is such an important one. And if there's something that I've learned from my time in politics, I, I have done best when I've worked for people who like, I genuinely admire, think they're smart, feel I'm going to learn from, think that you know, they, they will support me. And, you know, Jeff is that like, I'm very happy to work for a CEO uh, like that. Um, And you don't always have that opportunity. Um, But when you do, it makes a huge qualitative difference in terms of life and job satisfaction. Um, Well, and and, and I will now take this clip and I will put it (laughs) in his inbox. That's right. <laughs> okay, let me draw you out. What else can you say really complimentary about your boss? Let's just spend some real linger here. No, um, uh, I also remember like part of your calculus, I remember you saying that there was, you know, obviously every company, if you're in corporate content in my job, work with clients like baseline, we have the, you know, the companies need to have performance, right? They, we, right. We, they need to do well and, and, build a company that can achieve those types of results. But that's not all they do. And the way you, you the way you do that can mean an awful lot to people like you and me who, you know, care about a lot of different things. You yeah. know, so what is the impact on the environment? What is the, you know, how do they treat their employees? All these things, and, and not just us, but, you know, working people generally have a lot of different factors by which they evaluate a company. And it sounded like, Jeff was at a position of his leadership in where the company was going to go and, you know, try to do some ambitious things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it is part of the DNA of General Mills. I, I won't um, spend too much time on this, but I, I, I will explain, like, if you are thinking of going corporate, these things do matter. And so for me, learning that, you know, at the founding of General Mills, like all the mills blew up, <laughs> it was over. Oh, wow. Wow. And the decision was the, the, the decision before the company was like rebuild or just kind of go away. And the decision was made to rebuild. And like that is part of the DNA of the company. And there are plenty of companies that have stories like that at their founding. Part of that same story, however, for us was, you know, lives are lost when those mills blow up. And General Mills not only made the decision to figure out, like, how can we prevent that from ever happening again? And now that we have that equipment in place, we're going to share it with everybody. Like it's not, we're not licensing it. We created it. We are making it freely available because this explosion can impact anybody at any, at any point in the future. It, wow. How can that not warm your heart if you're an employee? You see that echo out over history time and again for this company. Like the, the kids who were now orphans as a result of that explosion, one of the largest orphanages in this country was created as a result of General Mills. Feeding no America idea. was created in the 70s by General Mills in large part because during World War I, the company fed 100 million Europeans that were starving. Mm. It's, it is a company that, you know, 
you, you have to find these moments of motivation that kind of make a difference. Today, I would say the company is very much focused on pushing forward regenerative agriculture. As Jeff likes to say, sustainability isn't enough. If you're talking about sustainability, it's, it's not going to work for the long term. We're a food company. We have to make food, and we're increasingly losing our ability to do that. Um, so regenerative agriculture is the good that we're doing for today's families. Um, and again, like every company is different. Every company yeah. is focused. I would want to believe in making a positive difference. And to the extent they are and it aligns with your beliefs and values, it can be really motivating. Yeah. I know I could talk to you all day. Um, and, but we're coming up towards the end and I, I have a few questions that I like to ask people. Um, one, if you haven't told me the story already, um, it's called In the Vault. Can you tell me about a time where you made a mistake? Um, it was kind of a disaster and what you learned from it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was a person. Uh, I think enough time has passed that I can share this. I, I will somewhat disguise this. Um, uh, I was asked to prepare a memo, very sensitive, about the firm and the work that we were doing in politics and what impact that might be having on client perception. And so, you know, it was, it was a very candid look at our work and um, some of the things that, you know, were in the news that were less than flattering. And so wrote it all up, talked to lots of people, pulled no punches, verbatim quotes from employees, from leaders, from clients, um, news stories. Whole thing was like about 10 pages. Sent it to the CEO, sent it to the, the CFO, and I accidentally sent it instead of the CPO to a client who had oh. a very similar name. A very similar <laughs> name. And the second I hit send, it was just like, oh, yeah, that, I'm dead. Like, yeah, I'm oh. absolutely dead. Uh, I immediately called that individual. I was just like, I want to explain to you what you have and why it happened. I'm really sorry. Please don't respond to, to this thread. And, you know, delete that memo. He's a great guy. He was just like, <sighs> this could happen to anybody on my life. I'm never opening this file. And just wow. deleted it. But then, like, I had to march in to my yeah. CEO and explain this is what happened. And, um, I, you know, what, what I learned from that was I, it is important to take responsibility when things don't go well. It is important to, to just say, like, mea culpa, uh, this is my fault. And mentally, I was prepared to be fired. I had accepted that this was a fireable offense. Um, to his credit, the CEO uh, like looked at me and said, thank you for telling me. Like, okay. And I'll just never forget that. It was just like, okay, yeah. I appreciate the grace. I appreciate the grace that's been given here. Well, it, uh, it really speaks, I will say, to the credibility that you have with multiple people in that story. One, the CEO, right, to your point, but also the client that you called, yeah. right? That was just like, I've got your back. Like oh, I we've all we so right, we've probably all slipped and made sent an email like that. Um, maybe not as explosive as that one. <laughs> but the fact that they're like, I'm deleting it and I won't read it 
yeah. is a real credit to what how they think of you. I, I should send that guy some some muffins after that. <laughs> Still, <laughs> thank you. Okay. Um, you are one of my very few, maybe my only um, uh, guest in all the uh, interviews I've done, who is a member of an actual Hall of Fame, a bona fide Hall of Fame. PR Week is an industry paid, uh, trade publication um, that is like the gold standard of giving out awards in our business. And they have a Hall of Fame. Hano, you were inducted uh, into it for your life's work. Um, that's very impressive. That's not my Hall of Fame. My Hall of Fame is uh, is a fantasy where if I could raise the money, I would put it on the National Mall and the inductees would be staffers voted upon by other staffers. So my question for you is, who would you nominate for the Staffer Hall of Fame? Oh, gosh, that is such a great idea. Um, well, I'm going to set aside the obvious, which, again, like I can't possibly nominate my wife, but it's it's the first one that kind of comes to mind. Um, yes. You know, I I actually probably would nominate um, Ben LeBolt. Uh, yes. And this is tough. Like you've put me in a very difficult position. Of course I have. The nature of, of DC is that <laughs> I have now picked one name and like all my friends, like Brent Colburn, Dag Vega, <laughs> Josh Ernest, they're just like, you're a jerk, right? Like all merit this. Um, <laughs> But I really, have I really have found um, I'm, I'm generally impressed that Ben is somebody who um, has found a way to work in politics at the highest levels. He worked for for Obama, um, the original campaign and reelect, I believe, um, is now a partner at BPI, but has kept a finger in politics, toe, if you will. And um, I think he just steered the Supreme Court um successful nomination through. And um, yeah, I've always really been impressed by by his ability yeah. to do that. And it's just, you know, still early on in his career and I trust that he'll continue. So I am prematurely nominating him to the Hall of Fame. No, that's a great nomination. Um, he's in. Um, is there anything that I should have asked you or that you'd like uh, just to add in here before we wrap up? Um, I'm not, not, well, you know, what? I will share one more anecdote, which is Great. when I was a young staffer on the Hill and, you know, Bob Greenstein convinced Congressman Becerra to hire me. Um, the desk area that I had, you would open the door to the chief of staff's office and behind the door, <laughs> they made this makeshift, like. It wasn't even a desk. Like an IKEA engineer would like look at that and just say, "Like that's not structurally sound. You can't smell that. Like that's horrible. <laughs> that's not even allowed in Sweden. That's it's a, too yeah. small yeah. for Swedish desk standards." We we would laugh about this all the time because people would come into her office and it was like a scene from Veep. They would open the door and I was just like, "Oh God!" <laughs> and it was every day. And it was every day. And you know, life is much more comfortable now. But like. I, I'm still that kid. I am still that kid at that desk and still, you know, excited to to kind of be there, like regardless of how unstable that situation was. But but well, that is what, what it is to be a stabber. It's to like love what you do and to like just swim in those waters with glee, even though sometimes they're leech infested. <laughs> 
You know, I'm glad you ended there, uh, Hanno, because I've talked a lot about how good you are at your work. And that's not just me, that your career bears it out. The recognitions that you've gotten all bear that out. Um, but you are someone who is a joy to work with and around. And you've gotten, you know, many past colleagues uh, to say that. And you've always been so generous with your time and your wisdom uh, to me. Um, and I know to many others. Um, so thank you. You've been generous uh, today. And I just, I can't tell you how much I admire you and how much I appreciate being able to talk with you today. That's because I'm never busy, Jim. You know, I'm just, <laughs> just yeah, sl- sure. slouch off at work. Sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> thank you, Jim. I'm really big fan of the show. Love the show. Uh, thank you for inviting me on. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.